No. Okay. Hey, welcome everybody. We are in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to just hit 1 and 2 just to get us launched into what we covered last week. But uh, we're going we're gonna to really cover verses 3 through 11. And uh, we'll begin as usual with a prayer and then we'll sing one uh, verse of scripture and sit in silence for a couple minutes and then we'll come back and get in our verse by verse. Uh, okay, let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we pause amidst the lives you've given us that we've been blessed with in so many ways. And uh, we just collectively get together to recognize your hand, your presence in this, uh, in this earth, in our, in our lives, in our hearts, in this world, and in the universe. We recognize you are supreme, and we look to you for guidance and uh, realize that uh, salvation is not found in ourselves. It's not found in religion. It's not found in the words I say. It's not even found in uh, the Bible. The salvation has been given a gift to us by you. You loved us so much you gave us your son. And he gave his life for all the world, especially those who believe. And so we come together to try to understand you better and pray your spirit will help us do that. Forgive the things that uh, I say or that we say that are incorrect and let the Spirit guide and help us to move us closer to you in relationship and not in outward religion. So we pray that uh, your Spirit will be with us now. Those who aren't here with us who'd like to be, uh, let them know of uh, our hearts for them. Those who watch from home and in the archives, we welcome as if they were here. And uh, pray for the, those who are seeking for truth that we'll be able to be of some sort of benefit to their search. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Okay. Hey, listen, before we get into it, I just want to reiterate that um, here at campus, we ardently maintain that the Christian faith is subjectively lived and understood, that it is between you and your God. Uh, everything, your beliefs, your faith, your love, the way you live your life, the concepts you endorse, the concepts you reject, and we study the Bible as a history of what was in the apostolic church and looking for the principles that may or may not apply to us. There are principles that apply and there are principles that do not. And that is determined by you. Uh, 
That's not determined by me. That's determined by you and you're hearing the word and deciding what you think and how it works with the spirit within you. Uh, we might liken it to uh, you have the right to travel anywhere in this world. You have the right to live anywhere you want in this world, to be a citizen of any country in this world, etc., etc. And But what we are doing here is we are studying geography. And we're helping you with the lay of the land. Or we're studying maps and we're studying culture. But we are not telling you how it applies to your life. That would be the comparison. So while I ardently maintain that the inspired word of God that is found in the Bible, just think about how I said that, is his word, uh, it's up to you to decide how it applies to your life. That's what has been afforded to us with the good news. So just make sure you understand, especially as we're getting into some of this stuff, because it's pretty unique. Okay, last week we read in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the things that you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. We said, what the heck last week? What's he talking about? Nevertheless, to avoid fornication... Let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. This was Paul's advice here. Now, last week, Ray asked me a question, and it's a good one, and he asked me afterward, and it dovetailed into what Earl asked uh, here on the record, actually. Earl said, do we even know what the question was that Paul got? We don't. He received a letter and in it was a question. Now concerning the things where you wrote unto me, we don't know what that question was. What were the things that were written to Paul that he was asking about? We don't know. But what we do know is that Paul's answer to the question is, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That was his answer. Okay? So this led Ray to ask, oh, actually, he, I think he did it with a microphone, isn't all that Paul is saying here is it's good for a man not to touch a woman in the sense of uh, unlawful sexual activity. He's not talking about marriage at all. Isn't that all he's saying here? And I think it's a really good question. Uh, after all, that is what Paul has plainly said. He just simply says, regarding what you wrote to me, quote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And he doesn't say it is uh, not, he doesn't say anything about marriage here. And I interpret Paul, I interpreted Paul, and I still interpret it, that Paul is saying, it's good for a man not to be married. I take his words there in verse 1 as Paul saying, it's good for a man not to be married. And so Ray was saying, it looks to me like he's just saying, it's good not to touch a woman. So it seems that the statement's clear. You've asked me a question. Let me say this. It's good. A man doesn't touch a woman. Don't get involved in a pornea, which is a translation of the word fornication there. Nothing about marriage. It's a response that merely echoes the fact that if it's possible, uh, men should refrain from sexual activities with women. And if they can't, they should marry. That kind of seems to be the context. So why do I read this line as Paul is saying that it would be better that they don't marry in this line. Not to this not touch a woman, but Paul is also saying it's better a woman does, that a man doesn't even marry. 
my view, which I realize could overstep its bounds, especially in, in light of these questions, is based on the context of the Old Testament, its practices, and the context of what Paul says later that we're going to read today. If we take those things that are couched in here, it makes, helps me to say he's saying more than it's good for a man not to touch a woman. He's saying it's good for a man not to even be married. So to me, when Paul says it's good for a man not to touch a woman, he means only, he means in any situation, in any situation, and he's not only speaking of unlawful sexual activity. He's not only speaking of unlawful, he's saying it's good for a man not to touch a woman, period. So that includes in marriage or, or outside of it. He has made the sin of unlawful sexuality plain in chapter 6. And the first few passages of chapter 7, don't do this, is what he has said. Then he turns to the unknown question asked of him in the letter. And if we could assume the question according to the answer he gives, the question might be, Hey, Paul, we are choosing not to marry or be involved in marriage at all. It could be that. And the reason Paul doesn't write back, the reason Paul doesn't say it's good that a man does not marry is because that's not the case. Um, if people must fornicate, they ought to marry is what he says. That's what the law says. That's what scripture says. And so if he would say it's good for a man not to marry, it would, it would send forth a difficult passage for them to understand in a letter. So in response, he says, it's good that a man not touch a woman. And by taking the Old Testament command to not touch any woman unless it's in marriage, remember that Old Testament uh, cultural and legal rule that abided. You don't have relation, sexual relations with women unless you're married from the Old Testament. Paul is able to answer in that answer, all angles for them. So, later Paul will add in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, For I would that all men were even as I myself. He adds that. But every man has the proper gift of God, one after this manner and one after another. And when this opinion is added to the mix of context, it validates that he was speaking more of marriage here in the verse than just fornication when he says it's better that a man not touch a woman. Um, additionally, it is at this point that verse, at, at, at verse whatever it is later on, Paul stops talking about fornication and he starts to talk about marriage. So he's been talking about fornication all the way up to this time, but in chapter 7, suddenly uh, he starts talking about marriage now. So I see in context there that it is marriage he is talking about, not just a sexual um, activity outside of marriage. Uh, but this is just to me, and, and it's, you test all things, decide how you see it, you can see it any way you want. Let's continue on with our text for today, because now Paul talks about the marriage relationship. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife has not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband has not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be for 
uh, with consent for time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incon- incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not by commandment. For I would that all men were even as myself, but every man has power, has, excuse me, every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband. But, and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. We're not going to get to 11, I don't think, but let's go back to verse 3 and 5. Paul says a lot delicately here, uh, relative to the marital union, and in particular to the physical union in a marriage. He is giving advice to the believers at Corinth. Remember, the Greeks thought better celibacy, going all the way back to Socrates. Because of the temper of the wife, it's better for men to remain celibate, was the Greek thought. Celibate referring to marriage, not referring to uh, non-sexual engagement. And then, of course, the Jews uh, held up marriage as as a holy institution. So he's addressing them now with marriage. And remember, he's addressing them with the end times in mind. Okay, just keep all that in mind. So at verse 3, he says delicately, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife has not power over her own body, but the husband, and likewise also the husband has not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So that line, let husbands render due benevolence, in the Greek means let the husband give to the wife what is hers, uh, and let the wife render to the husband what is his, what is due. Now, because we are Christians and the subject of sex uh, can be so freakishly awkward, uh, I don't know why, but it is. Uh, Paul is telling spouses that they don't have the right to hold out on each other sexually. That's, that's kind of the general gist of it. Uh, you don't have that right to do that, but he presents this in terms of due benevolence, D-U-E, benevolence, meaning in the intimacies of marriage, there exists a debt. That's due, due benevolence. I say debt because they are, as Paul says, due to one another. Um, Why is the wife in debt to the husband and then the husband in debt to the wife? Listen carefully. It's because the two have become one. The one is of two components. And with the both relying on each other to fulfill their emotional and physical and intimacy needs. They, have, they are not one. They, the two have become one. And as one, there is a due, a debt owed because they're one now in that relationship. So there's an ongoing, never-ending exchange of debts 
that occurs within such a relationship. Outside of marriage, there exists no such debt. The two in biblical times, at least Old Testament times, should never become one. And when they become one, they are married, and, and that is the marriage. So outside of the law of God, the children of Israel were never to become one. And so there was no debt or obligation owed in a non-marital uh, relationship with somebody else. Um, this is what Paul is talking about. And anyone who is married kind of understands the meaning. If you've been, though there is a misunderstanding and abuse with that passage as well, which I think we're going to be able to explain readily here, especially on the part of men, at least historically. Historically, especially in relation to the Greeks' advice on marriage, there was an idea floating around that promoted the notion of celibacy was the best way to live, and Paul was directly addressing this in the case of people who are wed now. Because remember, they're in Corinth, and it's that little isthmus, and it, it connected the east to the west, and it was a place of great exchange. So we had a lot of ideas coming through here. Paul is talking to a group that's been exposed to all these wild ideas, and he's trying to bring the church and the believers in the church, then the apostolic bride, in harmony with what is going to help them sustain and not, not fall apart. So not only is there no honor in celibacy, within marriage. It's not rightful. There's due benevolence. There is a debt when two become one. Paul explains the premise behind this in verse 4. He says, the wife has not power of her own body, but the husband has the power, is the inference. And likewise, also the husband has not power over his own body, but the wife. Now, this line is pretty tough to explain in our day and age uh, because it just flies in the face of autonomy and I am my own person and no one's going to tell me what to do, whether it's in my marriage or, you know, and it's not one telling another what to do. You got to understand that. So uh, individual rights are like just crazy mad today. So this verse is kind of tough. But remember, Paul and Jesus and God himself see a married couple as one. That's how you are seen. Not two. Um, in terms of the relationship in the marriage. So, as one, Paul is saying the power the woman once had over her own person, of her body, is now given to the husband. That power is given to the husband. And I say it's given to them in part. And I say in part because she's still responsible for herself and as a woman and as an individual and as a daughter of God. And the husband is still responsible for himself because Paul's going to talk about divorce later on and we're going to see that that's the case. Nevertheless, within the marriage contract, the two becoming one, the principle maintained in the Christian ethos of agape love and respect hold true. The power of her body has been transferred. The power is given over her body to her husband. Now, if we just take it like that, it's a frightening, frightening scene, especially if you know some men. So Paul is not willing to leave it here. He adds, and likewise... 
Also, the husband has not power over his own body, but it's given to the wife. Now, this is really interesting when you think about it. If the wife has power over the husband's body, and the husband has power over the wife's, then there is an implicit result that says there has to be agreement between the two. There has to be a a consent. There has to be a uh, compromise, at least, between the two are involved. Uh, in the, especially between the physical unity, if it's to be appreciated and enjoyed. We can say this because if the husband takes this transference literally and overtakes the body of his wife, let's just say he does that, using this passage as the justification for his right to do it, your body's not yours, it's mine, he says. She, in turn, has the right to overtake his body and to shut it off. I have the control of your body now, husband. And I say, no. You see, so it doesn't work like this predatory view that we get, can get from it, that it's like all for one and you go out and get what you can get here. Sorry for the, for the descriptiveness of this, but that's what he's talking about. It's not that at all. It's that he has the power over her and she has the power over him. And what they do is together they work out how that is going to look. That's called relationship versus an overpowering of one over the other. And that is really what he's describing. So when power over the other has been bestowed equally by God in a married couple, the ground rules must be ones of shared interest and love and respect, commonality, and, and all those things uh, into play, or there's going to be huge problems. So if you were counseling somebody in, who is having these issues, you could go to this passage and you could start breaking down what's going wrong by using Paul's advice. Anytime one party assumes a right over another in a marriage covenant, they can't forget that there's complete reciprocity, total. And therefore, there must be total and complete agreement based on love and respect and the unity for it to work. God is ingenious. He is ingenious. Imagine if God told the two who had become one that they each had power over their own bodies. As you've become one, you each have power over your own bodies. Imagine if you would allow that to work itself out in the marriage contract, what it would look like. Uh, it could get pretty ugly in relation to each other. Or let's say that God said, the man has ownership power over the woman and he doesn't reciprocate that. We would have a horrible, ugly situation. Years ago, M. Scott Peck, he's a pop psychologist, long, he's dead, but he wrote a book and he said, the reason people get married, I've cited him a lot about marriages, he says, we get married to bear, bring up children and we get married for friction because the one is working on the other and the other is working and there's friction going on and we're rubbing off our edges in that relationship. By God bestowing the power of the one and the other over each other, that lends right to that in a healthy relationship. 
So I always thought that was pretty astute of how he brought that up. With the marital covenant, there is a constant conflict of the two becoming one. Now listen, this lends to the uh, ingeniousness of God. <coughs> Within that contract between a husband and wife, it's emblematic of the relationship all of us have in our relationship with God. It's very, very, very emblematic. That's why God always referred to the children of Israel. God, uh, they were his bride. And that's why he says that she had committed adultery against him by going after, after false gods. And God said, you have betrayed me. And that's the language that is used all through the Old Testament. So in the marriage, each individual learns, we learn in a marriage to die to ourselves and to live for the other. If the wife is doing that and the husband isn't, there's problems. But if both are trying to do that, you have a good marriage. And they are working out their marriage with fear and trembling. It's what happens. It's when the honeymoon is over. And there's no real growth, there's no real maturity unless uh, this is occurring. It's not a relationship of loss of self. It's not a relationship of total subject, subjected subservience to a master who tells you how you must be in everything. That's a lie because that's not what the relationship is between us and God either. Um, when marriages are single-sided or when... Uh, one or the other are taking control over everything, there's no growth. And there's no real maturity. There's no, there's no real love. And that is not what the Christian relationship with God is. So God wanted the two to become one, not the one to become exactly like the other. In fact, they can't. There's a male and a female, right? So he wants, in the marriage relationship, he wants both to grow and to... Uh, overcome so they can become stronger in their united effort, in their united unity against the world and in raising their children uh, and all the other things. Uh, the radical thing is, so it is in our relationship with God. That's the radical application if you don't see it. So while we speak often about dying to our will and letting God's will reign and uh, God is not a puppeteer, uh, unlike what the Calvinists will say. Um, and the God in human relationship is not one of a, of a master demanding that his servants do exactly what he says. That is not how it works in Scripture when God relates to us human beings. Uh, that's the basis, just to let you know, of Eastern metaphysics which are huge today. And that's the idea of nirvana, nirvana, that within Christianity, God is not seeking for the individual to get lost. He is not seeking for Jim and Jane and, and Susan and Ralph to stop being Jim and Jane and Susan and Ralph. He created you as you are. He gave you your attributes. He gave you your gifts. He, 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 he wants to work in relationship with you. Not a top-down, you must do this. And if that's lost, you either see God in the wrong way or you become an Eastern meta, uh, metaphysician. 
So think about what it says in Isaiah uh, 1.18. God says, come now, let us reason together. Let us reason together. Do you ever reason with God? I mean, do you, do you say, I don't understand this at all. This is not really making much sense to me. Explain it to me. Now, would you do that with your father or your mother here on earth? Of course you would. Well, he's the ultimate parent. And so, you know, you're talking to the ultimate parent. Not gender specific. We call him him, but he, there's feminine sides too. It, he's the ultimate he, she's the ultimate parent. You engage with him. You talk with her. The Holy Spirit is feminine in the Greek. And you, and you have relationship. There's nothing wrong with saying, this is driving me nuts, God. I don't agree with this. I don't even know what you're doing here. He's big enough. He can handle it. He wants that. Otherwise, you're in a relationship where all you are, yes, yes, sir, no, sir. Okay, it's why David talked with the Lord so openly, a man after God's own heart. He talked with him. And Moses spoke with God as a man speaks with a man. And, and of course, he's not a man, but he's talking with him. And God, of course, knows his thoughts and knows us, but he wants a relationship for you to trust that you can have that. He gave us our suke, our minds, our wills, and our emotions. And he doesn't want to kill them. He wants them to be working in unison with him. And that's why the path of soteriology, which is the path of salvation, is a two-way street. It is a two-way street. It is not a God does this and you must do that. God does this and you must do that. It is a two-way street. And you're constantly working with each other to understand. We are working to understand him. Imagine a marriage where the husband says to, takes over the wife's mind, will, and emotion. Uh, to do everything he wants. And it's ugly. My, uh, we just visited my parents last week in Southern California, 84 and 80, and been married, uh, met when she was 11 and he was 14, married when she was uh, 13, first child at 15, and uh, all the way up till she was 40, he was king. Every penny he gave to her, everything she did, he decided. And then she woke up. And I was, you know, in the home when she woke up. And it was 10 years of living hell. And they talk about it. And my dad admits, I couldn't take it. I couldn't take this woman telling me that she had a, an identity and a mind. It was really creepy. And, and, uh, but that's how it was. And that's not how God wants it. Imagine, you want to go outside? She goes outside. You want to have, I want salami now. She eats salami. Uh, I want to watch a horror movie. She watches horror movies. I want sex. She lays down. I mean, that is not the relationship we have with God. And so the same relationship is played out in marriage as it's played out with us and our Lord. A healthy marriage, there is relationship where the two, the two become one, not the one becomes the other. And that is how it would work in our relationship with God. So it is with faith. He works in partnership. And uh, so listen, just the warning, because I hear it more and more. If you begin to hear people espouse or attempt to introduce Eastern metaphysics, which talk about losing yourself, become, uh, emptying your mind, cutting off your head, uh, getting absorbed into the whatever it is, uh, be very careful. 
because that, is, that has never been the Christian biblical intention that God has for his creations that he made in his image. And if that starts to come your way, just watch it and look at what is really being said. Paul goes on at verse five regarding the same subject and he gives some direct advice to the believers. He says, defraud to the married couple, you not one another, except it be with consent for a time that you may give yourself to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. The idea expressed here is don't one of you decide, hey, I'm not going to uh, have relations with you uh, uh, carnally or however you want to put it. Uh, you agree that you decide to do that. And the reasons that he gives is that you would give yourself to fasting and prayer. And he says, but be careful. Don't go for too long. He says, for a time. He says, but come together again that Satan doesn't tempt you for your incontinency, meaning your lack of self-control. That's the King James way of saying for your lack of self-control. Why would Paul tell them that depriving themselves was permissible for a time, that they could agree upon doing this? He does it because when people are looking to focus on the spirit, we just sang a song to those who live according to the spirit. Uh, the things of the spirit are made manifest to them. All the way back in the Old Testament, when people would decide they want to really commune with God, they would fast, they would pray, and they would abstain from relations with each other. That's part of abstaining from the carnality of the flesh. That's all he's talking about. If you decide to do it, stop, and you're going to not eat, and you're not going to enjoy entertainments, and you're not going to have uh, uh, sexual relationships, abstinence, fasting, and prayer were all port, part of that Old Testament. But don't do it too long because Satan will take advantage of your lack of self-control is another way to put it. Uh, I, in the book of Exodus, I think I mentioned this last week, Moses tells the children of Israel, God was going to come down and visit them on, in Sinai. And he tells them, and Moses went down from the uh, mount unto the people, this is in uh, Exodus, and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. This is all external stuff. And Moses said to the people, be ready against the third day. Don't come at your wives. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a big cloud, and the trumpet sounded, and the people in the camp trembled together. They externally prepared themselves like a high priest would going into the temple once a year on the Day of Atonement. He, Moses told the camp, listen, for three days, don't go to your wives, wash your clothes, get ready. It was all external. And so what Paul is saying is if you want to internally draw closer to God through the Spirit and you and your spouse choose to do this together, understand it's the agreement, but don't let it last too long because you will become weakened and you were, Satan will tempt more. So I personally see no problem personally with Paul's advice. If people want to fast and pray and uh, abstain from relations uh, in their marriage agreed upon for a space of time because they're seeking more of the spirit, I think there's great merit to it, but it's a personal decision and there's no law upon it. At this point, we're presented with a difficult, but it's interesting to me. may not be to you, but it's difficult. We're going to do a vote here. He now says something that there's great debate on. You ready? Verse six. But, Paul says, I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Okay? Now, most people think that Paul is talking about what he has just said. Because he starts with, but, 
I speak this by permission and not by commandment. All right? However, in verse 7, he says, For I would that all men were even as myself. But every man has the proper gift of God, one after manner and one after this. So that verse and the way it begins also makes us think that Paul, before writing the words of verse 7, says, Now, I speak the following way by permission and not commandment. For I would that every man were as myself. And, and he goes on to talk. So you decide for yourselves. In fact, I want to take a vote here in our live studio church, if you guys are willing. How many of you think when you read verse 6, this is for your studio guys at home, that Paul is talking about what he had just said? Raise your hand. You guys are so lazy and tired and frightful. I knew no one would do it. How many of you think he was talking about after? Not, uh, okay. Thank you. Two people. Three. And they all went like this. All right. On this point, our Bible commentators, I went back through about 17 of them. Uh, they're divided. Uh, when reading it without much analysis, it seems more natural of an interpretation to think that what Paul just said about coming, uh, coming together and fasting and staying away from each other and all that other stuff is just his opinion. That it refers to verses 1 through 5. The King James, where it says, by permission, stands in opposition to something that is expressly commanded. So in other words, whether Paul was talking about what he said in verse 1 through 5 or what he says at verse 6 thereafter, he doesn't claim to have an insight from God on this. That's the important part, is that in Scripture, we have passages that are written by the men, and they are not inspired by God. Paul is pointing one out here. There may be other passages that have the same application that aren't pointed out. We don't know. It's by the Spirit today when we read it as to whether it has application in our lives. Let me give you an example. Uh, and Paul talks about how to treat widows. He doesn't say, I give this by, uh, for my own mind. He doesn't say this is what the Lord says. He just tells us how to handle widows. And he gives seven things about widows that are absolutely ridiculous for us to even consider today of how to handle widows in, uh, in the faith. One of them is, do they wash people's feet? Then they're a qualified widow, okay? So he doesn't say the Lord didn't tell him to say it. So it's by inspiration. Do we, do, do we follow that? So we need to read the scripture by the Spirit and make sure that the application uh, fits. I really love this passage because it shows the honesty in Paul's writings. He clearly knows somehow when he's talking of his own opinion and when he's talking about by the Spirit or what Jesus has taught him in, in the Sinai Peninsula, Sinai Desert. So you guys have not voted, even though I thought you might. Uh, it is fascinating. Paul says one thing from his own mind, and then he says another thing from the mind of God. And he does tell us in this situation which is which. So we're going to continue and talk about the verses. What I discovered from this fact is there are statements in Scripture which are not inspired. And this is why it's important that we study to show ourselves approved. The uh, Latin is epistemus verba. It means that the Bible that you hold in your hand is word perfect. 
That's an absurdity. It's not word perfect. In fact, when Christian scholars talk about the Bible being um, inerrant, they're talking about original manuscripts from God's mouth to Isaiah's ear when he wrote it, those were inerrant. That's what inerrancy of scripture means. When you take the Bible versions that you guys have in your hands and I have in mine, and we say this is word perfect, it's a real mistake in sound hermeneutics and exegesis of Scripture. And it leads to all sorts of problems since 30,000 denominations today under Sola Scriptura. So, um, one of the big passages is 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That is cited to me by everyone who says Epistemus Werba, every word of this Bible. They're, today they're known as King James Onlyus, just to let you know, okay? Uh, but you have to remember that the Greek and Young's literal translation and Webb's literal translation of that passage says, every writing that is inspired by God is profitable for doctrine. It doesn't say all scripture. It says every writing that is inspired by God is profitable for doctrine. There's a difference in the translation between those passages. So you go back to the, the Greek and you look at the most word-for-word um, -word translation, that makes better sense. Any scripture that's from God is profitable for doctrine. And it's left up to you, the individual, me, the individual, to read, hear, listen, and see how God is working in us. People don't believe that's possible. I would suggest to you it's the only way. Otherwise, you're going to have a pastor saying, this is what it means. You better believe it. You better do it. And you fall under objective religion. And there's 30,000 of them that differ with each other. But when we get together and we read the scripture and we consider the alternatives and the spirit is abiding and you're free to say, I don't believe this. And you're free to say, I embrace it wholeheartedly. And we love each other as followers of Christ in whatever way that is. And we exit, we are overcoming the problem that was established by the reformers called Sola Scriptura. So that's why this stuff is important and to talk about it because it's equipping you from dogma that serves to put you in bondage. And that's the last thing in my estimation, my opinion, that God wants is for people to be in bondage. He sent his son to set the captives free, to open the prison doors to them that are bound, to let us have freedom in Christ, not bondage. The children of Israel were under bondage. He came to set us free. So we study to show ourselves approved. By the way, I believe what Paul says in verse six, my opinion is he's talking about everything after verse six, like three of you ladies proudly showed your hand it was after. Thank you for your personal support. We may be wrong, but as we talk and wrap up today, I'm going to share with you along the way why I think this is what he was actually saying. Even though the first reading says, it seems like he's talking about what he just said in verses one through five. So let's go to verse seven. For I would that all men, he says, were even as myself. But every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, and most scholarly interpretations of it, which we're going to get to in a few weeks, Paul was not married. 
Now, uh, there, while in ministry is, is the caveat. There are debates on that, uh, but uh, some say he was and his wife left him because he converted to Christianity. That's a possibility. The justification for this could be that uh, he may not have been as esteemed in the, in, the, uh, in the eyes of Judaism anymore, so she left him. But this is not definitive. Another thing that we know from the Talmud and the uh, Tanakh, which are the, the Hebrew Bible, is that there is, a, there is no writing in the Tanakh or in the Bible that a rabbi must be married. Now, there is rumor and it's been said, but within the Tanakh and the Talmud, and if you go to a Hebrew, for instance, blog, or you go to where rabbis speak, and the question is asked, do you have to be married to be a rabbi? There's instances in their history where men have not been married and have been allowed. And so their answer from the rabbis ubiquitously is, there's nothing that says that. That's what they say. So if anyone says Jesus and Paul had to be married because they were teachers of the law and were called rabbi, you don't have to accept that because that is not proven by uh, Hebrew scripture. Okay, Paul, what does seem clear is that during his apostleship, he was single. However, there are two ways to see what he says. First, some suggest that when he wishes that all men could be like himself, he could possibly be saying, I wish you could have control over your faculties like I do. Not talking about being single, but say, I wish all could be like me. That, that's possible. And in light, some believe that Paul is telling them that he wishes they could be like him in that he is not connected to somebody through marriage. And there's a, like a 60-40 weighting here of scholars on which way people see it. But even this wish, if his wish is, I wish you could be like me and not have the propensity, uh, and you have the control, um, in the end, he still is saying that you would, be, you would remain unmarried. In the end, that is what he is saying. So if his first thing is, I wish you could be like me and have control of all your faculties, what he's saying is also, also without saying it, that you remain unmarried. Okay? Because earlier he said, if you have to, go ahead and get married. And he will say that again. So that's inferred. I wish you could all be like me. Or he's saying, I wish you could all be like me and not married. And that infers, meaning I'm not touching women either. So both are covered in what he says when he says that. So I personally believe that Paul, over that dispensation and church age, headed toward the destruction of Jerusalem, the wiping out of all Judaism once and for all in 70 AD by Titus under the Romans, I think that he was in fact telling them, I wish you could all be in control of yourselves and you didn't have to get married. That's how I read that passage. To the resistance that this would be uh, against what God established in Genesis, that a man should leave his wife and uh, mother and father, uh, I would propose that Jesus was able in his day to take what God had said formerly and alter it to fit the circumstances of his time. And he gave his apostles the same right. And so we see that change in time. Tithing is one of them. 
So where God certainly commanded of the children of Israel, Jesus doesn't speak of it except to condemn the Pharisees and Sadducees. And Paul never speaks of it in terms of any type of thing that we must do. So there was an ability for God to have established something among the children of Israel and for things to change along the way. So just because God commanded it in Genesis doesn't necessarily mean New Testament characters had to go by what he said considering that age and time. After saying or writing this, Paul adds, but every man has his proper gift of God. He says, I wish you could be like me, but every man has his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. And here's another reason I think Paul was not speaking by commandment here, uh, but of his own opinion. In other words, he says, you know, I wish you all could be like me in control of your passions, so you don't need to marry. But then he admits, but every man has the proper gift of God. He says, I wish it. He doesn't say God wishes it. He says, I wish it. What a great thing to not only recognize and admit, but to remember when we are tempted to start looking at the gifts and abilities of others and to think of ourselves as lesser. That Paul had certain things given to him, and he says, he, he adds that. He goes, I wish you could be like this. But every man has his, her, proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that manner. Admitting that God has made us all very different. Don't look at others because they have certain gifts and think of yourself as lesser. Uh, look at yourself and what God has given you and move forward. Perhaps God gifted Paul with zero libido. And that was a gift for him. He didn't have to concern himself with it. And he could focus on his apostolic labors. If so, praise God. Uh, but if God gives another man or woman libido of a horse, uh, praise God. It doesn't matter in the age of grace. We are all part of the body, made how he wants to make us. We don't look at each other and say, I wish I was, I wish I... Paul just says, it'd be great if you could be like me, but every person is given their own gift. All pieces of a grand puzzle and, 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 and different pieces all unique, fitting in that body that makes up Christians. Uh, it's really fascinating in the human experience to me when we tend to regale people who are naturally peaceful, naturally loving, naturally generous, uh, naturally certain ways. And we think of them as perhaps being superior when in reality that's how God made them. They're just living up to the way that God made them. And they have areas where they need to work on it just like we do too. So just think about that. Every man has his proper gift. Another reason I believe Paul is speaking his own mind here in these passages is because at verse 8 he now says, I say, therefore, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them to abide even as I. So that's just another little indicator. I think when he says, I'm now speaking of my own thing, not of the Lord. The word unmarried here... Um, Interestingly, he only mentions widows here and not widowers. And I'm not sure why, but I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it's good for you to abide even as I. If he's talking about not touching other people, that means unmarried too. If he's talking about unmarried, it means not touching. So it's one and the same. Because, because he uses the same words, it is good here, in verse 8, I say it is good for them, and it's the same phrase he uses at verse 1 of chapter 7, it is good to not touch a woman. Uh, I think that we have a connection to being chaste and unmarried, and that is what Paul is saying is good. 
I think that is where we get a connection between being chaste and unmarried is why he says it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I'm still continuing on with that case. That if possible, because that whole age was going to be wiped out and Christ was going to take his church, it may be advisable in the present circumstances, he seems to say, of persecution and distress and death and martyrdom, which is going to come by the hundreds of thousands of believers of Christians before 70 A.D., I think he is saying it's better if you can be like me, unencumbered and in control of your passions. And then at verse 9, but if they cannot contain, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn. Now, uh, again, is this Paul's insights or the Lord's? We can't say. But in the context of that line he gave us at verse 6, I still think he is still speaking of himself here. I'll tell you why in just a second. What we can say is he believes to some extent that if people can't contain in their fleshly desires, it's far better, it's preferred that they marry rather than burn. And burning uh, throughout Greek history established 400 years before Christ burning was always associated with the passions of the flesh, uh, especially sexual, but in all passions, really. He burned with anger. Burning is just part of it, burning up in our flesh. So I believe there's a play on words here that Paul is uh, uh, ascribing to. He also could be saying it's better to marry as a Christian in the faith, Corinth, than to burn at his coming because Jerusalem was sacked with fire and many died with the fire. So he could be saying it's better to marry than to burn at that coming because he was going to take his bride, which was protected from the fire, and you wouldn't be part of that if you were living contrary to what the apostles taught. Uh, having stepped into the subject of marriage, back in verse 1, Paul now advances deeper into the topic, and he addressed those who are already married, and uh, he says, listen very carefully now. We're almost done. And unto the married I command, I again, but he, listen, he adds, not yet I, but the Lord. So let not the wife depart from her husband. So now at verse 6, he says, I'm, not, I'm saying this, the Lord isn't. But now at verse 10, he says, and now I have something more to say, but it's not me that's saying, it's the Lord. He comes back to the Lord being the speaker. That's why I believe verse 6 clearly is telling us that between verse 6 and verse 9, everything he says is Paul's opinion. Most scholars believe it's from verse 1 to verse 5. I think it's because it's between verse six, uh, 7 and 9 that Paul is giving his opinion. And it's r radical because that matters. I mean, if Paul's just saying it, it's just Paul's opinion. But if God is saying it, it's something more important. But we can't figure out which section is God and which section is Paul, looking even at our greatest scholars disagree on it. So it's really, really funny about how something so important can be debated under the umbrella of Sola Scriptura. And I say that because the spirit is primary. The scripture is secondary. The spirit is primary and preferential. The scripture is secondary and referential. Church history is tertiary and deferential. And uh, modern day churches and, and authority 
is uh, nonsensical and inconsequential. That is the way I think scripture should be understood now. So look to the spirit, look to the word, look to church history, and then go from there. So he has spoken of fornication. He has spoken of those who can refrain from it. He has advised those who can't to marry. He speaks of relationships, physical relationships in marriage. And now he speaks to those who find themselves in a marital relationship who may want to divorce. Two Christians. And he says, And unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord commands, let not the wife depart from her husband. And we're going to end there and talk about that next week. Comments, questions, insights. All right. Hi, Sean. It's Melissa. Hi, Melissa. I have an insight for you. Good. And I hope that you have an insight in return. Probably. All right. Going back to what you said about the scripture and whether or not it's perfect, I think there's a lesson to be learned here that not one single one of the disciples were perfect. Not one single person in the Bible was perfect, except for Jesus. Obviously, God made everything, and God is perfect, and God is love. And there's a lesson to be learned in imperfect people being inspired, and inspired doesn't mean perfect. Inspired means that you have a light go off that's from God, and that you do something that God asked you to do, but it doesn't mean that you're going to do it perfectly necessarily. Okay. My comment is, I understand what you're saying, uh, but that traditionally it has been that the words God gave Isaiah directly were written down perfectly in terms of the, what God wanted him to write. I'm not saying the grammar was perfect. I'm not saying that uh, the spelling was perfect, but what God wanted Isaiah to write was inspired by him and written by him, but the next copy of that could have been uh, could lend to your argument, men aren't human, and therefore mistakes will be made. So I do ascribe to uh, original manuscripts, autographs were uh, perfect. I do believe that Isaiah wrote what God wanted him to write, and if he didn't, God would have said, no, I don't want that, I, I want you to fix that. Uh, but I do believe that shortly thereafter, those manuscripts could have been altered by the imperfections of men. That's how I see it. If you find comfort in believing that the original manuscripts and God said, Isaiah, write this, and he wrote something different, if you want to sustain that, that's fine. You can do that. I just don't, I just don't see the, the value in looking at it that way. Okay, I'm talking about New Testament and just the disciples. You see them differently than the prophets of old? I see them. I don't know how I see them compared to the prophets of old. I'm just saying that they walked with Jesus. They learned from Jesus. They were commanded to go out and, and build the church. Yeah. And even doing so, when they were waiting for Christ to return, they made mistakes. Sure. And we can learn from those mistakes and learn that there's a lesson to be learned, even if it's not a perfect I life. I see. Okay. Got it. Who else? Thank you, Militia. It's probably mine. Anybody else? Okay. Oh, Danny. That's not an indication that I'm horny. Okay. But, <laughs> oh! Um, speaking of that, um, I'm single, 
and have been for a number of years, but I've been married, and so, and I've had a family. Uh, I have found that being single is a blessing in the fact that I can devote my time and my energy and my thought towards the Word and uh, focus on uh, Christ. Yeah. Uh, it's been a, truly a blessing to me, and uh, I consider myself married to Christ in that way mm. as being part of the, the body, you know. Uh, I'm, I'm open to uh, marriage, but that's not the issue. The thing is, is that I can see the benefits if Paul is single, that he doesn't have to think about a family to take care of. Yeah. And that may be a little selfish, but at the same time, it's a blessing. Yeah, especially yeah. what he had to do. Yeah. And what you have to do. The other thing that I think about too is today, when I see, when I talk to people who are uh, coming out of, of religion, and the one spouse comes before the other one. And now we've got tension in home, and there's division, and there's the talk of divorce, and there's anger, and there's all kinds of things that come out of that that aren't positive. But I'm always impressed by those who come out together, or yeah. the one who comes out first, as you did, mm -hmm. and then show forth the love and the um, uh, how God has changed your heart, and that's evident in your the way you act naturally after that. Mm. God in you, and so then your family, Mary and the girls, recognize that in time they trusted that and look, yeah. took a look at the facts before they, uh, you know, went to God and gave their life to Him. Yeah. And so I see. I wonder if some of that's going on in Corinth. You know, you've got some that are joining, com becoming Christians, and they're Jews, and their spouses are going, "We're not, I'm not going to do that," or they're uh, pagans, and they're not going to, they're not going to come over to this new religion. Yeah. I wonder if there's some of that going on too that Paul has in mind when he says it's good to be single. I'm sure. And also with the final scripture we just read is that, and if you're married, stay with who you're married with. I can't think of anything more antithetical to God's will than for a couple to divide over religion. I just can't imagine it. For a marriage, especially with children involved, for the one to say I'm Catholic and the other one to say you know, I'm Mormon or whatever, and for them to divide, I just cannot justify in my mind, in the light of scripture, a divorce over that. And yet it happens so much. So unfortunate. Are you gonna speak? No. Oh, you're Arvana? Okay. All right, nothing else you guys? Okay, just to let you know, we're interviewing John DeLynn. We did, already did our interviews. Uh, he's an important player in, the, uh, in uh, Mormonism and disaffected LDS people. It's three parts. It's on the, web, the first part's on the website. In the next uh, two weeks, we're going to be showing the other two parts, which I think are really good. And then John's going to come, and he's going to spend three hours, and he's going to interview me. It's a follow-up from him interviewing me back in 2008, and it's what we have learned. I was a certain Christian when I talked to John then, and the things that we have learned, and, and that uh, might be good too. So I just wanted to let you know, check out John DeLynn's interview with us here uh, at campus. Let's pray. Ooh, Lord, we, uh, we lift these people who are here and people at home, their struggles, their difficulties, my difficulties, uh, the stuff that easily besets me as a man here in this world, and uh, the things that move our sisters and brothers away from you. We pray that your spirit will abide 
you loved us so much. You saved us as we were in our sin, and it's done. That is the good news. It is done. It's happened. And so now we just seek to know you and have relationship with you, um, not religion. So we pray for those who are seeking a, a relationship with you by the Spirit that they will find it. And you will touch them and you will reach them and hold them and make yourself known. Break down those uh, walls that we all have hidden that resist you and your truth. And uh, let us resist men. We can resist religious tradition. We can resist error all day long, Lord. But help us to embrace whatever is true, eternally true, and cling to that because to know you and your son is life eternal. And this we trust and believe. Uh, we pray for Robert, surgery for lymphoma and the cancer on Monday, Monday. We pray for Gracie, continued recovery from the cancer she has been battling as a little child and uh, that of her parents watching over her. We pray for Lisa and continued healing from the cancer she has, was diagnosed with as stage four, but it's, it's turned to remission a little, pretty much, and she's got a few things left, so help her. Help Diana, uh, renewed strength, overcoming depression and healing, and bless our sister Carla with a K, that she, her body will heal and she'll overcome all the difficulties she faces physically. Annette, Mike, David, recovery from surgeries and concerns. Pray for the heart of my sister Kathy, that she'll be able to overcome the past uh, terrors of her life and to be able to move forward in freedom in you. Diane, kidney stones and bleeding. Joan, healing from her broken leg from car accident. And everybody else who stands certainly in need of prayer, if not for themselves and for their children or grandchildren or parents or neighbors or even enemies. Lord, help us to walk out of here and be better Christians. That's the goal. And that we'll just simply have faith and we will possess your love for others. That's it. And just we pray that you will give us opportunity this week to see your hand, see your presence in our life, and we'll recognize it as that. And to walk out of here free in you and full of hope and faith, but most importantly, love. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, yeah.